You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Tales from Medical History. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at lueepodcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at lueepodcast.com. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Lauren Bailey. Hi there. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Today, we are going to talk about historical developments in medicine. We're going to talk about some bad things that happened, some good things that happened, some interesting things that happened, and some things that were extremely ethically dubious. Things and people that were extremely ethically dubious. (laughs) (laughs) Things that were. Things that are. And some things that have not yet come to pass. So uh, it's a bit of a bit of a grab bag today, uh, kind of a loose topic, um, and uh, one that I swear I did not just pick because I wanted to repurpose some research that I had done for class. So uh, we're going to start off with a segment about. Ah, fellow that you might uh, you might have heard of once or twice, named Benjamin Carson. I've never heard of a Benjamin Carson. <laughs> Before I dive into it, uh, I should note that this segment was effectively co-written by some classmates of mine. <laughs> Manny, Zinnia, and Godson, because I did, in fact, adapt it from a project uh, that we that we put together. Um, it is a, it is a busy time. a podcast. Well done. <laughs> Something to put on your CV. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm still reeling from the OSCE that I did today. So uh, if I'm not all there tonight, that's why. <laughs> so let's start off by talking about the man himself. Benjamin Solomon Carson, better known as Ben Carson or B.S. Carson for short was born in Detroit, Michigan, on September 18, 1951. Carson and his brother were raised by a single mother, and Carson grew up poor. As a child, he struggled with anger and behavioral issues. Uh, As he tells it, he once tried to hit his mother with a hammer. Another time, he attempted to stab a friend during an argument. Uh, Luckily, in this case, the knife broke off in his friend's belt buckle, uh, preventing his friend from being injured. And Carson later described this as the moment that he realized he needed to deal with his anger issues and began to take himself out of these more dangerous situations. I have to say, I expected you to say that was the moment he knew he needed to be a surgeon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I need to do a better job at cutting people. Obviously, I need more practice. Want to cut people more effectively. Carson has, you know, made quite a name for himself, obviously, both in the surgical and political arenas, which we'll, we'll get into. But he's always been fond of telling his own story. Um, and, you know, there are, as happens with all of us as we tell our own stories, we there are 
are inconsistencies and embellishments in, in some of these tales. So take all of this biographical stuff with a, with a bit of a grain of salt. But um, according to Carson, he struggled in school and uh, soon fell to the bottom of his class. Uh, his mother decided to uh, solve this problem by uh, telling him he couldn't watch TV uh, and instead had to read two books each week and present her with written reports. Within a year, Carson apparently rose to the top of his class, uh, impressing his classmates and teachers with his academic improvement. I must have seen that book report thing in a meme or something, because that's sticking out to me as like, oh yeah, I heard that weird thing about him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is, as uh, listeners are probably aware, um, one of the uh, one of the outspoken voices in the uh, black conservative movement in the United States. Carson graduated with honors from Southwestern and then earned a full scholarship to Yale and received a Bachelor of Arts degree in psychology in 1973. He then went to the School of Medicine at the University of Michigan, where he decided to pursue a career in neurosurgery. In 1982, Ben Carson was named the chief resident in neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins. In 1985, he became the director of pediatric neurosurgery at the young age of 33. Definitely got me beat. Uh, hmm. The youngest physician to hold a position of this significance in the United States at the time. Hmm. Wow. So Ben Carson is best known for one particular surgery and then a few, <laughs> a few repetitions of that performance. Um, is anyone familiar with the surgery? No, I don't know what kind of surgeon he is no. even. So he is a pediatric, or was, uh, before he retired, a pediatric neurosurgeon. Clearly, I was listening very closely. We are going to uh, to take a brief detour to talk about conjoined twins. Oh, conjoined cool. twins! Oh, cool. Conjoined <laughs> twins are rare, and only about forty percent of conjoined twins are born alive. And those that are born alive often don't survive beyond the first day. Well, about one in every two hundred thousand births will involve conjoined twins in the United States. Only one in 10 million births involve craniopagus twins, conjoined twins that are mm -hmm. joined at the head. The separation of conjoined twins is always difficult, but the separation of craniopagus twins presents by far the greatest challenge due to shared neural tissues and venous sinuses, sort of big areas of uh, blood flow uh, in, the, in the brains of the two twins that are, that are shared. So these uh, venous sinuses pose a particular danger uh, due to the risk of thrombosis, air embolism, and simple exsanguination, bleeding out uh, during uh, the separation procedure. Not all conjoined twins are separated, and in many cases, conjoined twins can live uh, healthily and remain conjoined for life. Uh, this is often much more difficult for craniopagus twins especially when they're joined sort of at the, at the crown because they can't stand, they can't move, they're joined together. So often separation is attempted and that separation is pretty much always fatal. In 1987, a 70-person team at Johns Hopkins attempted the separation of Patrick and Benjamin Binder, two seven-month-old craniopagus twins from Germany. Unlike many twins conjoined at the head, the Binder twins each had a distinct brain with its own arterial blood supply. This made separating them a possibility, 
but the fact that their brains still shared a single large sagittal sinus, this is the venous sinus that I was talking about earlier, made the procedure extremely risky all the same. So if you have shared arteries, your bleed time, as you can imagine, is going to be a lot faster. Mm. Um, and that will exacerbate the risk, but any shared blood supply, which you're going to have, makes the task difficult. The separation was sufficiently complex that even with so many skilled hands at their disposal, a straightforward surgical approach had little chance of success. It would simply take too much time. So the decision was made to induce hypothermia and perform a complete cardiopulmonary bypass on both twins to buy the team more time. Wow. They basically lower their body temperature, put them into a state of hypothermia, which slows their metabolism. And they basically take, uh, they put them on heart and lung machines, totally bypassing the heart and lungs. For this procedure, Ben Carson was the lead neurosurgeon, and the team included four other neurosurgeons, seven anesthesiologists, two cardiac surgeons, and five plastic surgeons. Months prior to the surgery, subperiosteal tissue expanders were inserted into the infant's heads and gradually inflated over the course of many weeks. So this promotes the growth of additional scalp tissue that would be needed to cover the area that is where they're going to be separated, right? Meanwhile, the team rehearsed the surgery over and over again using two dolls that had their heads Velcroed together. <laughs> okay, I'm not a surgeon, but I think Velcro would be easier than... <laughs> But, I mean, tell me. No, you have to get all of those tiny hooks out one by one with just like a a regular size crochet hook. And and without making any noise, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like that scene from Ninja Turtles 2 where Raphael removes all of the bells. Okay. Just just so I'm trying to get the the layperson's. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in rehearsing for the OSCE that, uh, that I just wrote, uh, I was lucky enough to have living, breathing humans in my home that I could practice with. But because of uh, COVID protocols, a lot of my classmates <laughs> were stuck using... From the pictures they posted, it looked like a large number of them had access to things that really looked like blow-up dolls <laughs> to practice on. Oh, my. Um for the record, I recommended that for Jem when I got tired of being his <laughs> fake patient. So when the time for the surgery finally came, the twins' bodies were dropped to 20 degrees centigrade, their chests were opened, and their heart and lung function were given over to machines, while cardiac surgeons actually performed heart surgery, harvesting tissue to use in the reconstruction of their cerebral venous system, and plastic surgeons worked to separate their heads. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. The surgery was not without complications. With the exposed brain tissue warming above optimal temperature during the procedure and thrombosis occurring in both of the pumps that provided Oof. oxygenation <sighs> uh, that provided oxygenated blood to the twins. And thrombosis is clotting, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Jem's already yeah. into doctor speak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So 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 blood clots uh, formed in the pumps that pumped oxygenated blood uh, into the twins' bodies. Yeah, bad times. uh, Yeah, which is not good. Uh, But both twins survived the operation. After their separation, they were placed into medically-induced comas while they healed. The success of the surgery catapulted Carson to fame. His autobiography, Gifted Hands, uh, became a bestseller, (laughs) 
the made-for-TV movie adaptation starred Cuba Gooding Jr. But the reality of the situation was a little less rosy. As I said, both Binder children survived the operation, and both did survive to adulthood, but they were left profoundly disabled. Until his recent death, Patrick Binder had been comatose for more than two decades. Benjamin is still alive, but lives in an institution and is incapable of speaking or caring for himself. And it is clear that these deficits were a result of the surgery. Hmm. Prior to their separation, the twins had stood a pretty good chance of being able to live full, uh, albeit unconventional and difficult, lives. After the operation, their mother was racked with guilt, and the twins' father fell into alcoholism, and the relationship between the two deteriorated. Several members of the family claimed that the doctors had pressured them into the surgery and failed to adequately explain the risks, while really only talking about the, the benefits of the surgery. This is, uh, sadly, uh, something that has happened quite a lot in the history of medicine, and something that continues to happen. That said, the separation of the Binder twins did prove the feasibility of the team's techniques, and Carson went on to repeat the process four times. Of all five attempts, only one can be considered an unqualified success, when the 1997 separation of two Zambian twins left both of them neurotypical. While Carson retired from medicine in 2013 to pursue his political career, other neurosurgeons have continued to build upon the foundation that he laid. Several subsequent craniopagus separations have been performed successfully. In 2017, the Delaney twins in Philadelphia left hospital after only five months post-operation. That same year, the McDonald twins were successfully separated in New York State, and with the aid of physical speech and occupational therapy teams have made huge strides in their development post-operatively. In 2020, the same doctor who performed the McDonald surgery successfully separated two craniopagus conjoined twins from Italy. The techniques pioneered by Carson's team have allowed many conjoined twins to have the opportunity to live individual lives and develop on their own. This is uh, a complex picture, though, because what we're doing is we are performing extremely complicated, life-altering surgery on very young children and relying on their parents to provide the consent. That is an extremely fraught, complex issue in medical ethics, and even in cases that could be considered less high stakes, like when you're talking about neonatal circumcision, uh, which I have uh, strong opinions on. But when you're talking about something this life-altering, it's hard, and it's, uh, it's complex. So I'm interested in uh, hearing from the panel what they what they think about uh, this uh, conjoined twin separation generally, um, and uh, and this procedure in particular. Oh, like I can see why it would seem like it's worth the risk because even just like getting around the world with your head attached to someone else's head, pretty hard. Yeah, for sure. It, it's hard because if somebody's just you know the classic joined at the hip or something like that, and the separation is uh, really sort of easy to do, it is both much less risky and also much harder to to justify doing the surgery on a very young child, right? 
Um, and I think the ethical issues are far thornier kind of because of the fact that the surgery has both such a high chance of failure or uh, causing permanent disability, but society is not set up to, you know, and, and this is hardly a defense of society. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I would never. Um, society is hardly set up to to support people with these kinds of needs. So I actually, I looked up a an article because I just wanted to see a picture of how the two heads were uh, conjoined. And... I just read something that totally solidified my opinion. Apparently, at least at the time of this surgery that you're talking about, craniopagus twins almost never lived past their second birthday. So might as well give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, that's that's where things get really, really tough because it's like, well, they they could die now, but the chances of them dying in the very near future are almost guaranteed so it and then you're thinking well quality of life as well it's you know that like in a lot of cases they lose out in quality of life but they would also lose out in quality of life it's yeah yeah so the binder twins stood a better chance of surviving than a lot of other craniopagus twins because Mm -hmm. they didn't share any neural tissue and their their systems were as close to separate as you can kind of expect for craniopagus twins yeah but, but that is also why yeah, they had a better no chance a of going exactly. through surgery yeah exactly and neurotypicality is not the be-all and end-all sure yeah. and i mean coma the, is not the best either no though. no not the coma <laughs> <Right>. but <laughs> if you had been able to live with intellectual disabilities or any other kind of life then it, then it's worth doing the surgery especially if you're not going to live past two as a general rule, you know, attached to your sibling. Sure. But I also have strong feelings, you know, as the trans on the panel, I have strong feelings about doing, and I'm using this in quotation marks, corrective surgery on intersex children before they have the ability to consent, which is what about ism in this case, but it's right there in, in, in the news and in the forefront right now. So, yeah, and that is um, that's actually something that we've talked about uh, in class so far, and it has come up in tutorials before. And tutorial leaders have kind of danced around the the issue, and a few of us, including myself, have uh, pressed them on it. And the current guidelines, um, as far as we are taught them, state that there is no such thing as corrective surgery for intersex children. You know, like Good. you don't you don't do that because it's it's. It's not up to us. The the, the only uh, caveat would be certain kinds of anatomical variants uh, need some amount of correction for health and safety. Yeah, um, so yeah. I was going like, to say like if they can't, if they're not going to be able to like use their bowels properly yeah. or yeah. something, then obviously you need to do that. Yes. But like and like the uh, children who are born with like a fused foreskin, they have to have a medically required yeah. uh, circumcision. But ninety nine point nine percent of people born with a penis not needed. Yeah. I'm just gonna put my you know, put my opinions out on Maine today. <laughs> <laughs> so um, let's let's talk about uh, Ben Carson briefly outside of medicine, I guess. So uh, very successful doctor. Yeah, <laughs> Lauren is giving me the thumbs down. <laughs> <laughs> 
very successful, I, I shouldn't necessarily say very successful doctor, you know, by, by all accounts, he was a, a very talented surgeon, but uh, widely successful in the medical field, I guess. But outside of his success in medicine, Dr. Ben Carson is well known for many things, uh, particularly his conservative politics and his endorsement of pseudoscientific and pseudo-historical uh, theories of many stripes. Dr. Carson, like many physicians and scientists before and since, uh, demonstrates one of the disadvantages of the blanket trust that is placed in doctors and scientists by society. <laughs> Given his uh, success and contributions to the field of neurosurgery in particular and uh, medicine as a whole, when he speaks, people listen. However, uh, Dr. Carson's views on uh, evolution, for example, <laughs> are a... <laughs> Far cry from scientific. Uh, and um, oh, I have way too much space in my brain for that guy we met when we did the Creation Museum, who was an oncologist <laughs> yep. who believed in creationism. Like, I think about that guy way too often. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Charge him right. Yeah, I keep, wondering, I keep wondering if I'm going to run into him. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, not, not I don't, so far. I have no idea what his name is. Do you remember it? I don't, but I, I'm sure I would recognize him. Yeah. Yeah. We talked to him for quite a while. <laughs> yep. Anyway. He, uh, he has spoken about the, the connection between belief in evolution and the devil. Uh, and he has uh, made several statements that evolutionary biologists characterize as fairy tales. <laughs> um, uh, although he has sometimes clarified that these were his personal beliefs only, it's possible that these kinds of statements might um, further erode uh, public trust in, I guess, science-based medicine, or potentially worse, um, being kind of encouraged by Dr. Carson's outspoken rejection of uh, science to uh, dismiss scientific approaches to these and other questions. Folks may remember that when uh, Ben Carson ran for uh, the Republican nomination in 2016, I believe, right? His slogan was heal, inspire, revive. Wow. People also search for Herman Cain. Like, there's more than two black politicians. There, yeah, yes. I guess they uh, are both, like, male, black, conservative weirdos. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Black conservative politicians are less common than yeah. uh, white conservative politicians. Or black centrist liberal less conservative yeah during ben carson's 2016 presidential campaign uh, not only did he continue to dismiss evolution he also presented a bunch of pseudo-historical ideas about for example the origin and purpose of the uh, pyramids of egypt right i remember oh, the pyramids no. thing yeah for grain storage but wasn't that his weird idea yeah, yeah he was like oh. yeah they're they're, they're they're like grain silos <laughs> what like just Wow. It's like It's like he's never in all those books he read, he never came across one about ancient Egypt. <laughs> like And what what of the what of the suspicions that I have is that a lot of smart people get in the habit of wondering why about something. Sort of brainstorming or coming up with what might be a plausible answer and then just deciding that they're right and not investigating <laughs> it further. Oh my god, am like, I, I know, into I, that right now with people? <laughs> I used to do that when, you know, when I was 15, 16, 24, 25, you know. <laughs> you grew up. As you do. <laughs> Eventually I did. 
uh, you know, I don't know for sure. Like maybe that is a, a well-known conspiracy theory. I'm not sure. But there are, there are others that we don't have to get into. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's Ben Carson. Important part of uh, the history of neurosurgery, complex ethical issues uh, at play. And, um, you know, a fairly good politician, I think. Not a particularly successful one. <laughs> Talking about Ben Carson, and I knew he was a surgeon and neurosurgeon, but that is all that I knew about his medical career up until this presentation. And it's very interesting that, again, he catapulted to fame uh, in medical circles, uh, maybe not like in the grand scheme of things, but in medical circles for doing this heroic type of medicine. And it very much is like that this type of surgery is this heroic type. And yet the people that ha had the surgery just sort of are left to obscurity, which on the one hand, yes, you people want to be able to just go and live their lives. They don't want to be like put on display all the time. Um, but it's also like no one checked in on them later to say like, hey, was that thing you did actually good? Like, not that no one checked in on them, but like, oh, he's famous because he did these things. We can do this now. They are now separate. Off you go. Which is very interesting because that's exactly um, the way that a lot of doctors in the early 20th century approached things and some very famous ones. One that I want to mention later if we have time. But it's just very interesting. So uh, from a doctor of political significance, Ashlyn is now going to talk about a person of historical medical significance. Henrietta was a black woman born in 1920, the ninth of ten children. She was actually named Loretta Pleasant at birth, and her family cannot recall why or at what point her first name changed, although they do remember calling her Henny as a nickname when she was quite young. Lax was her mother's maiden name, and her mother died when she was four, in the process of giving birth to her tenth child. When her mother died, her father couldn't cope with ten children, and all the children were sent to live with relatives. Henrietta wound up with her maternal grandfather, Tommy Lax, who lived in a log cabin, which was a former slave house, and the whole family worked in the same tobacco fields where their ancestors had been enslaved. In fact, Tommy's white father, Albert Lax, was a slave owner who left his land to his black descendants. The land would come to be known as Laxtown, and is where many of her family members still live in the state of Virginia in the United States. She and a cousin named David Lax, Dave for short, shared a room from a very young age, and Henrietta gave birth to their first child when she was just 14. At 18, they had a daughter, Elsie, who was born with developmental disabilities. Unlike most unwed mothers at the time, Henrietta, who was Catholic, was not exiled from her church or community, and went on to marry Day in 1941 when Henrietta was 20. They moved to Baltimore so Day could work at the steel mill, which was experiencing a boom due to World War II, and they had three more children, David Jr., Deborah, and Joe. Joseph has since changed his name to Zakaria Bari Abdul Rahman, uh, after finding Islam in prison. Shortly after Deborah was born, Henrietta complained to her close friends and cousins that she felt a knot on her womb, and that she didn't feel right. 
She didn't pursue any medical treatment, partly due to cost and inconvenience, and partly because she soon realized that she was pregnant with her youngest child, and she assumed that her friends had been right when they told her that she was probably just pregnant again. (laughs) While she was pregnant this time with Joe, she was unable to care for Elsie, her second child, the way that she had been. She had been born with developmental disorders that were quite severe, including uh, epilepsy, and doctors recommend institutionalizing Elsie. Uh, Henrietta was very reluctant, but finally agreed because she just couldn't care for her anymore and nobody else was helping out. Uh, And she visited her daughter every week and remained very concerned that she was getting cared for properly. After giving birth to Joe, Henrietta noticed unexpected bleeding, pain during sex, and she was able to feel a lump on her cervix. So she went to her doctor. Uh, That is what it took to get her to go to the doctor. (laughs) And the doctor told her that it was likely a syphilis sore. So they did the test, and it came back negative. So she was referred to the gynecologist at Johns Hopkins, which was the nearest hospital which would accept black patients. Hmm. Uh The gynecologist who treated Henrietta noted that she had declined treatment for several ailments previously, being either unable to afford the treatments or the time to travel to the hospital, uh, including... Things like uh, getting tested for sickle cell anemia, um, abnormal bleeding that she had previously talked about, uh, and also another syphilis test. She just was like, sorry, can't can't do it. Uh, she had actually given birth at this hospital just a few months earlier to, to Joe, and no one had taken note of anything being off during any of the examinations she underwent. So, like, they had done a vaginal exam during... The birth and had not seen anything unusual. Um, however, when she was given a vaginal exam this time, uh, there was a tumor that was visible to the eye. So this thing had either grown extremely fast or incompetence. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really hard to say which one it was, honestly. Like, uh, I'm gonna vote for incompetence. <laughs> I mean, but they it was an extremely aggressive form of cancer that is yeah. very possible that it just grew that fast. Yeah, and it's, it's also like uh, they say never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by incompetence, but malice also exists. True. Like, it, it could have also been, you know, lack of due diligence. Right. You know, like not, not incompetence, but lack of care, I guess. Sure. Mm-hmm. So the gynecologist at Johns Hopkins biopsied the, the growth, and she was sent home to wait. When her biopsy came back positive for a malignant cancer, she didn't tell her family. She didn't want to worry them, didn't want to concern them. She told Day that she was going back to the hospital to get some medicine. I don't know how that covered like a four-day absence, but apparently no one questioned it. When she went to the hospital, she was admitted to the public ward, which was for patients who couldn't pay at all or maybe couldn't pay full price, but they were for sure like there as a charity case. And of course, many such patients at especially Johns Hopkins, because they accepted black patients, were black people. She signed a form when she was admitted stating that she allowed any surgery the doctor deemed necessary while under anesthesia. That was just sort of the the blanket consent form. And it was even like, I agree to any form of anesthesia. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> you know, hmm. whatever is deemed necessary. Terrifying. Yeah, those those kinds of consents were a lot more common back mm-hmm. then. Uh, it was 
common practice at the time to take samples from patients without their knowledge or consent. Uh, the justifications ranged from, well, they can't pay us, so it's only fair that they help with our experiments, to they'll never know and it's for science, so it doesn't really matter. That they're never, they'll never know uh, reminds me of uh, a lot of the the kinds of invasive exams that medical students used to, and in some places presumably still do, uh, perform uh, as part of their training. You know, when we did our male urogenital exams and had to do digital rectal exams and like that, we had sort of, uh, we had people come in who were trained to sort of teach us how to do these things. And, you know, we performed these exams on those people. Um, it's, wow. uh, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting, it's what like a, a great job, a great program. Um, and it was good, but what they used to do is they would go find a fully sedated patient in the hospital and you would just do, uh, an exam on this person who was incapable of consenting. Um, and that kind of thing hap uh, used to happen, still does in some places, uh, for pelvic exams on, um, on patients uh, as well. So Yeah. And they'll never know. So why would we not stick things in people's vaginas? Yeah. And, and uh, the, the charge against these, um, uh, these procedures was led both by patients and by medical students who objected to it on ethical grounds. Um, mm -hmm. and so these... These things, uh, I, I don't know if there's any medical school in Canada that still does that kind of thing, but my school doesn't. <laughs> Good to know. Yeah. No, I was for sure thinking about those same issues while I was writing this. It's And the fact that it's still, at least in the States, I don't know about Canada, once a surgeon has taken something out of you, it doesn't belong to you anymore. And they can do a lot of things to that stuff without your consent. Mm -hmm. uh, mostly they throw it away, but it they're not even supposed to, like they're, they have no obligation to give it back to you. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's an ordeal to be like, no, I want this thing. And they're like, what? Uh, I believe uh, we've actually covered this, but um, I don't recall, but I, I believe in Canada, you own that, uh, that stuff there was a cool there's a guy who i think he had his leg amputated or something and he wanted the leg and i think oh yeah did he get it like treated it with those him. bugs i don't i don't remember i don't remember i was uh i'll be honest i was in a few classes during that uh <laughs> during that class uh the the schedule they have us on is uh absurd yeah absurd yeah i was pretty zonked <laughs> Anyway, Canada, maybe you get to keep your stuff. That's maybe, the... maybe it's keep your stuff. <laughs> I got to keep my wisdom tooth. Yeah, I think dentists are a little more lax about it in general, too, because they can just, like, plop it in a bag and give it to you right there. Yeah, yeah, it's not, like, gonna rot. <laughs> Much. Yes, I understand yeah. the difference between my wisdom tooth and somebody's leg, but do you? <laughs> are they significantly different in your mind? <laughs> While under anesthesia, Henrietta received the standard treatment for cervical cancer of the day. Does anyone know what the standard treatment for cervical cancer in the day was? Maybe Jem? Cervical removal? Wait, this again? Uh, cervical removal, no. Jem again? Uh, so, sorry, I was just asking what year this is? Uh, like 1960-ish? Yeah, like 
I'm sorry, 1951. Oh, 51. Um, yeah. Like... I, w- I would guess some sort of chemical solvent um, or m- like maybe like a radical hysterectomy. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I was going to say burn it off with acid. Yeah. Burn it like off a, with like acid. A, yeah. Like a black solve sort of situation. Acid is close. Uh, they would sew tubes of radium to the tumor. <laughs> oh, my no. God. <laughs> right? I had never heard of this before <laughs> that. Never- I mean, I guess that's the beginnings of radiation. <laughs> yeah. Good. Oh, my God. So... Can you imagine walking around with that? <laughs> well, so they, they put you under. They sew the radium to your tumor on your cervix. And then you stay in the hospital for a couple of days. And then they take them out and send you home. Absolutely and hope wild. for the best. <laughs> and then you come back in three weeks and do it again. Whew. Uh, whew. Yeah. And when it's... do you when do you do it again for all of the other tumors that you now have? <laughs> <laughs> so horrifying. While she was under anesthesia, getting these first radium tubes sewn in, the doctors took two samples. They took uh, a dime-sized slice off of this tumor, which tells you how large it was, and also a dime-sized slice of healthy cervical tissue. And I was thinking about that, like a dime is pretty small, but imagine you have like a dime sized piece of skin missing from your hand. That would really hurt. (laughs) And this is inside of you. That is not fun. Mucous membranes hurt more. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, like they'll heal faster generally if you don't have radium up inside of you. But oh, so yeah, two dime sized pieces of tissue were taken. One of them totally unnecessary to her treatment, but the doctor was interested in comparing uh, cervical cancers to healthy tissue. And he had a special interest in cervical cancer, actually, the doctor that was supervising this program. Uh, There was a big debate at the time whether two different kinds of cervical cancer, whether they were in fact different or whether they were essentially the same and could be treated the same way. Um, And this doctor had an opinion and was setting out to prove it. And he turned out to be correct that you should basically treat all cervical cancers fairly similarly, at least with the techniques they had now, which is sewing radium into you. So (laughs) that tells you something. (laughs) Um, But that's why he was motivated to get these samples. And he was just taking samples off of anybody who was unconscious, basically. So good times there. Let's get back to my actual notes and see what I've missed. Don't know why people ever uh, ever lack trust in the medical establishment. Right. Incomprehensible to me. <laughs> so the cells from these pieces of tissue were cultured, which means they were grown in a test tube or a Petri dish so that there would be uh, more of them to examine. Uh, after two days in the hospital, the radium tubes were removed and Henrietta returned home. Her doctors thought she was recovering well, and she was told to return for her next treatment in a few weeks. She was able to return to her normal life of cooking, caring for her family, and even going out dancing. After her second radium treatment, however, she had to return to the hospital daily for x-ray therapy. So, the precursor, but uh, not a good time. And remember, this wasn't the nearest hospital to her home. This was the nearest hospital that would take her. So, it was quite a commute, and she was still trying to do everything at home, um... And having to go daily to this hospital and getting this treatment that eventually burned all of the skin on her abdomen, like, it was a bad time. After all this, though, she believed that she was in the clear, and she told people that she wasn't sick anymore. Like, she she thought she was good, and she was going for it. However, at this time, 
Uh, she was devastated to learn that the treatments had made her infertile. And the doctors claim that every patient was told about the ramifications of the treatment. And this was like, of course, it was going to happen. We told you. Henrietta told family members that either she wasn't told or did not understand that these were the ramifications. And she said that she would not, she would have refused treatment if she had known. There was not a lot of informed consent back in the day, and there was also something that was perfectly acceptable in the medical community at the time, um, benevolent deception, uh, mm. where you doctors were encouraged to not tell people the entire truth if it would upset them and do them no, like, do them no good. So despite all the treatments and an apparent remission, in June of 1951, she told her doctors that she thought her cancer had returned. They didn't think there was anything wrong with her. They sent her home, but a few weeks later, she was in excruciating pain. They found an inoperable tumor on her pelvic wall, and a course of radiation was begun that was only meant to ease her pain, but family members recall uh, thinking that they were still trying to cure her. So again, either the doctors told them what they wanted to hear, or... You know, there was there was miscommunication throughout the line. Uh, Henrietta died on October 4th, 1951, after several months in the hospital. So from, uh, I think, August to October, she was in the hospital that whole time and rarely got to see her family. The, the nurses asked her husband to stop bringing her children by because it upset her too much when they left. I keep turning my mic on to say something and then it just, I can't, it's... This is just a roller coaster of badness, this segment. Yes, and, <laughs> and knowing how the medical establishment still treats black women, it's... Yeah. Yeah. For sure. After Henrietta's death, doctors immediately asked Day if they could perform an autopsy. Uh, interestingly, samples taken from a living donor do not require consent, but tissue samples from a deceased person require familial consent. More rights mm-hmm. for corpses than for living people. The situation is apparently not hugely different today, (laughs) Um, according to This Podcast Will Kill You, which put out an episode on Henrietta Lacks like three days ago. Uh, (laughs) I would like to say that I claimed this topic well before I listened to that podcast, but it was helpful in uh, informing me on like how I wanted to structure my segment. So I appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so they, they asked Day if they could perform an autopsy. Day said no. But when he came to the hospital the next day, I'm, I'm not clear on whether it was to, like, to do paperwork or collect the body. I'm not sure what the procedure was, but they not cornered him, I don't want to say, but like they, they knew he was there and they, they came to convince him that this was right. the best idea. Like, you have to let us do this autopsy. He finally relented when they told him that like they wanted to take samples to help his children so that they could help them if they got the same type of cancer that she did. That's what they told him. Survey said this was a lie. (laughs) I mean, hypothetically, I guess, or something, maybe... Yeah, even in the 50s, it was a big question mark. Yeah. The doctors were so insistent that an autopsy be performed, primarily so that they could get more samples of Henrietta's cells. Something amazing had happened with the cultured cells from her initial samples. They hadn't yet died, and they were, in fact, still rapidly multiplying. Typically, cultured cells divide once or maybe a few times, and then they stop reproducing and die out. 
the search for cells which could divide indefinitely and be kept alive in culture was like a really big deal then. Like everybody knew that this was a goal that they were working towards. We're talking um, about hu- human cells. Human cells, right? yeah. Yeah, because because other cells are cultured all the time, like bacteria are cultured right. all the time. But they'll yeah, just keep... well, mammalian cells specifically, like not even right. just human, but mammals in general. Apparently, fish cells are super easy to uh, immortalize, and like they they live forever. Fish cells. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was interesting thing I found out. Uh, but yeah, the search for like a, a human spe- cell specifically would be like the absolute gold mine that would stay alive indefinitely and could could live forever. Uh, this had never been seen before. And this one culture of Henrietta is only the cancerous cells, not the healthy cells. Those had died immediately, just like all of the other samples normally did. Yeah. But the cells taken from her tumor uh, just kept rapidly multiplying as long as they had them. And this was amazing. Um, on April 10th, 1951, this is seven months before Henrietta died, the doctor working with her cells, Dr. George Gay, appeared on TV to talk about the cells and how they represented a possible cure for cancer. So he absolutely knew well before her death that these were an incredible resource. Uh he offered to send vials of the cells by plane to any scientist who wanted to work with them in an effort to speed up research into cancer. And they were known as HeLa cells, so named for the first two letters on the first and last name of the patient they were taken from. I hate him. For decades. I hate him so much. <laughs> for decades, Henrietta's identity was obscured and forgotten behind those four letters. One of Gay's colleagues has said in an interview that he met with Henrietta to tell her about the good that her cells would do. But there is no documentation of this visit. No one else attests to it. And so there's no Pretty, way to know. Yeah. yeah. It seems like a convenient story. Yeah. Right. It seems like a nice story, but probably not a true one. So Henrietta probably did not know that her cells would change the world. During the autopsy, it was found that Henrietta's cancer had metastasized to many parts of her body, and samples were taken from multiple organs and placed in culture. One of the scientists helping to place the cells in culture said that she saw Henrietta's painted toenails and realized at that moment that the cells came from a real person. That's an experience that I had in uh, the cadaver lab, actually, Mm. taking, you know, like doing a a dissection on a... uh, uh, on a detached limb, and uh, as I was proceeding, seeing um, nail polish on it, mm. it was uh, it was quite something. This scientist who was talking about it said that uh, all of the other features were were just like physical features of a body, but the polish was something that she had chosen for herself yeah. to put on her body, and so that was the the thing that mm-hmm. made her see her as a person but in contrast like heartbreakingly one of Henrietta's relatives talks about seeing that same nail polish after she died and crying because she realized how much pain Henrietta must have been in to let them get so chipped she normally Uh would never have let them get so bad but she couldn't uh you know do the normal things she would do to take care of herself and and no one else was there to to do something as simple as paint her nails because she was in that hospital all alone for many months. Yeah. So Henrietta's cells were soon in use all around the world. 
The first large-scale project that they were involved in was during the polio epidemic that began in the year of her death. Researchers, including Jonas Salk, were testing vaccines using cultured monkey cells, but repeatedly culturing cells that quickly died was hugely expensive. Dr. Gay was able to prove that they worked to test immunity against polio, and they quickly manufactured a ton of them to help with the effort to make the polio vaccine. And they were also able to use the cells to replicate the virus to test other things. So it would grow very readily in these cells once they were infected so that they could use that material to test other things. So super influential in the search for a polio vaccine. Demand for HeLa cells increased to much more than one lab could handle. So these were uh, being produced at the uh, Tuskegee lab, and specifically because of money that that lab had for, like, black projects, um, some of which were very bad. Yeah. <laughs> very bad. Famously bad. <laughs> so famous that Tuskegee is synonymous, almost. Right, with. exactly. <laughs> Um, however, they were doing good work in this instance by uh, replicating these cells, culturing these cells, and sending them out into the world. Um, I, I don't know for free, but certainly not for a profit anyway. They weren't making a profit on this. It was purely a scientific endeavor, public good, etc. However, some fuckwit decided that there was money to be made. <laughs> it's always a fuckwit. <laughs> Realize that there's always a fuckwit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this guy realized that this lab was just overwhelmed with requests, couldn't make enough cells. So like, why not set up more labs and charge money for this thing that everybody wants? Martin Screlly of the fifties. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even write down his name. I'm not not committing his name to memory. Fuck that guy. Dr. Gay, to his credit, was never interested in profiting from his discovery and thought that the cell line should be treated as a public good, the way it had been up until this fuckwit got his hands on it. So, nevertheless, despite Dr. Gay's wishes, labs were soon founded to pump out huge numbers of cells and ship them around the world for profit, making millions for their shareholders. It is estimated that by 2011, which was the most recent estimate I could find, over 50 million metric tons of HeLa cells had been produced. Wow. Too many. One of her relatives in an article, it was, I, th I believe he read an article that was published in Rolling Stone around 1975. Um, the estimate at that time was there had been about 800 pounds of HeLa cells created. And he spoke about how he couldn't get his head around how much that was because she had been such a small person. She was only five feet tall, so how could there be 800 pounds of her cells out there? We now have countless different cell lines. Uh, immortal cells that divide indefinitely, but HeLa cells were the first. They have a fascinating history of taking over other cell lines and contaminating them because they're just like super good at replicating. So uh, yeah. at one point in the 60s, it was discovered that like most cell lines were contaminated with HeLa cells. And so for a while, there was a theory that cancer, that cells just spontaneously became cancerous and there was not a lot you could do about it. Um, but then it was discovered that no, most of these were just this really virulent HeLa cancer that had taken over their whole culture. So now there's like so many procedures and uh, tests and workarounds to make sure that cell lines are the actual cell that you are wanting to work on and not a random HeLa cell. If I believed in an afterlife, <laughs> I would say that this was her revenge. And <laughs> rightly, rightly so. 
Um, so the key that makes them super good at being immortal and multiplying so fast, um, and the key for most immortal cell lines is uh, the cancerous nature of the cells that prevents them from running like the usual checks and balances that would prevent cells from multiplying in any number of situations. They just don't have that, so they just multiply out of control. Uh, as well, there is a mutation which adds length to the telomeres each time the cells divide, and that is like super key. Telomeric length. Oh, wow, there. that's pretty cool. Because <laughs> otherwise, like, they would multiply forever, but they would not actually last forever. Right, right. So telomeres are like the end caps to our DNA strands. They are repetitive sequences, uh, which are kind of like a buffer against anything important getting left off the end of the DNA strand when it's copied. As we age, the telomeres in our cells get shorter and shorter because they every time our DNA replicates, it has a chance of, like, accidentally chopping off some of the telomere. Uh, so eventually, this causes problems with replication when it starts cutting off the end of the actual DNA that we need, and it's one of the big research topics in the science of aging. So mm -hmm. maybe if we can stop telomeres from deteriorating, we can stop aging. Interesting. So these cells, and many cells that are these immortal cell lines, have a mutation which lengthens the telomeres. Even though they get shortened with replication, they never get too short because they're always kind of being replenished. Just pretty mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. So obviously, uh, cell lines have huge benefits to anybody studying cells for any reason. Uh, you can always use the same cells. You know, there's no variables to take into account behind like different cultures or different people that they were taking from. Uh, you can freeze and regrow them at different times. Like it's just uh, so much of modern science would not be possible without these. Some of the things that have been made possible by or just plain cool stuff that has been done with HeLa cells include... The aforementioned polio vaccine, 110,000 research publications, <laughs> research into the detrimental effects of x-rays. Remember Henrietta's x-ray therapy that burned her skin? She mm -hmm. prevented other people from having to go through that. Uh, a test to discover if cells are cancerous or not that was developed in 1956 and is still in use today. Both the Americans and the Russians sent cells to space to find out what the effects would be before human spaceflight was a thing. Her cells were used to study hydroxyurea, which is a drug that is now used for blood cancers and which aids in the formation of correctly shaped blood cells in sickle cell anemia patients, which is a disorder that doctors suspected Henrietta had that she could not afford testing or treatment for. Her cells aided in the discovery that HPV causes most cervical cancers, leading to HPV vaccine, which is basically a cancer vaccine. That's the freaking coolest thing humans have probably ever made. Uh, it's been used in research for the drug campothecin, which slows cancer growth. Countless parts of HIV AIDS research, TB research, Ebola, treatments for basically everything we have treatments for. It can all be traced back to Henrietta Lacks, who was a black woman who grew up in poverty and for whom adequate, prompt, and respectful medical treatment was withheld due to her race and economic status. Her children and grandchildren still suffer from the knowledge that her cells were taken and used without their permission, and they didn't even know about it until 1975, when suddenly everyone wanted their blood samples for further research. That was when the contamination and whatnot was at its peak, and they needed to figure out how to differentiate the lax cells from the non-lax cells. Her husband, Day, died in 2002 after refusing all medical treatment for conditions including gangrene, because he lived in fear that doctors would take his cells too. Aww. 
HeLa cells contribute an incredible wealth of knowledge and piles of good to our world every day, but the way they were obtained and the dehumanization of Henrietta subsequently have also contributed to the well-learned distrust of Western medicine by many people of color. The story of the cells in a modern context also contains uh, many strides for medical ethics and progress on informed consent. In her book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, Rebecca Sklute says that when she learned about HeLa cells during her education, all her prof knew about Henrietta was that she was black. During my own undergraduate degree, I was told that she was a poor farmer who died of cervical cancer and that the cells had been taken without her consent and why that was problematic. So there's progress there. (laughs) That was probably only 10 or 15 years apart. Uh, Since the publication of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, uh, which I definitely credit for most of the content in this segment, Mm -hmm. uh, public understanding of her case and recognition for her contributions has grown enormously. Schools have been named, days have been proclaimed, and women in science conferences have been held in her honor. Deborah Lacks, Henrietta's daughter, is quoted at the beginning of Sklut's book. She recounts how when she tells doctors that her mother was Gila, they get very excited and tell her all about the work they've done with them or the progress that's been made because of them. But then she says, I always have thought it was strange. If our mother sells done so much for medicine, how come her family can't afford to see no doctors? Don't make no sense. Yeah. Yeah. So before we uh, talk about something nice, uh, why don't we talk about something not so nice? Uh, we're <laughs> going to take a brief detour uh, into the tainted blood scandal. First of all, I'd like to correct something I said in the last year on the podcast. I don't remember what episode, but I mentioned that body cameras were an acceptable gateway to defunding police. Having done more research... I believe going straight for defunding is the best option and the money better spent on community resources like housing or feeding vulnerable populations. Now on to a different Canadian policy change. (laughs) In the late 1970s and early 1980s, the Canadian Red Cross Society's blood supply wasn't tested for either HIV or hepatitis. Donated blood wasn't tested for HIV until 1985, and by that time, over 1,000 blood recipients had been infected with HIV. Hepatitis testing wasn't implemented until 1990, and by that time, over 30,000 recipients had been infected with hepatitis C. In 1993, the Canadian government established the Royal Commission of Inquiry on the Blood System in Canada, also called the Creever Commission, after its lead, Horace Creever. I've included a link in the show notes to the entire report that was released in 1997, which I have not read, and it is three large volumes. (laughs) (laughs) But just in case you want to. (laughs) I have read the 50 recommendations directed to all parties involved in the blood supply system in Canada, though. It was even recommendations down to as far as uh, personal care physicians. Creever's largest recommendation was regarding precautionary measures. Remember how a couple of paragraphs ago I noted that HIV testing wasn't implemented till 85 and hepatitis testing until 90? That was because Health Canada waited for certainty that the tests were effective before requiring them, and a lot of blood that was positive for either HIV or hep C was distributed. 
Creever criticized that weight and recommended a more preventative course of action, which was followed for most major healthcare issues that were known to the public and affected white Canadians. Until, of course, COVID-19, where everyone in charge threw up their hands and said, oh well, we don't know how to prevent this. Anyway, back to blood. The Creever Commission report led to the creation of both Canadian Blood Services and HEMA Quebec, which now handle all blood donation and testing in Canada. The report also led to worldwide reforms so that other countries also treat their blood donations similarly. But no other country did a complete overhaul like Canada did. But this caution baked into the Creever recommendations has led to downfalls, not the least of which is baked-in homophobia in Canadian blood services. Men who have sex with men in the last three months are ineligible to donate. That even means monogamous couples. That's still so much better than it was, though. I know. Like, wow. Like, in the last couple of years, it's gone down from five years to one year to now three months. But still, there are people who have been in relationships for multiple decades who can't give blood, like, even though they're monogamous or, yeah, it's... Yeah, it's still totally ridiculous, but I'm... I am impressed at how far it has come. Mm -hmm. But it's also a thing like, if you're willing to look at the science and change your policy, why not change it so that it matches what the actual science says? Yeah. My guess, <laughs> my, my guess is that it's a it's a dodge against uh, criticism because if a single person becomes infected, then yeah, like I don't think that that's an actual it's defensible not a defense. policy. No. But my guess is that that's their their thought process. Right. Yeah, there's a whole big list of like it's called what is the ABCs of who can donate or not on the yeah you know Canadian Blood Services webpage. So. There's a whole bunch of people who can't donate, and a lot of it is, well, these populations could be icky. A lot of it comes from, you know, people who receive blood products mm-hmm. um, are at a, a higher risk of infection because no test is perfect. People who handle, like, monkeys and their bodily fluids, people who have uh, certain diseases or conditions. But a lot of it, it, for a long time, has been based on, like, uh, you know, have you lived, were you born in, or have you lived in a certain place yep. during this period of time? when there are certain outbreaks of communicable diseases. Yeah, I haven't donated since since the early 2000s when I learned of all this, but yeah, the the question list was quite extensive. I have been unable to donate since I became sexually active until they changed that rule recently. Mm-hmm. I'm on my 60-something donation next wow. week. Congrats. See, I wanted to be one of those people when I was seventh or something. (laughs) When I was in like the first year of university, I noticed that they had a blood donation clinic at the university every three months. Like as soon as you're eligible again, you just go back to the next clinic that they had available. It was so convenient. I wanted to be one of those people who had like the the pin of 100 Mm. gallons donated Mm. or whatever. And, uh, and I, I remember filling out the cards, uh, that they leave you at the the table. And every time I did it, I would say like, Hey, I can donate blood now, but I'm pretty queer. And so soon you're going to lose me if you don't change those rules. Yeah. (laughs) And they did. That's unfortunate. My iron is too low right now. Oh, it was really good. Everybody was always surprised. They'd look at me and go, you're okay? I'm like, yes, my iron's good, but now it's not good. But I will get there one day. (laughs) There was a couple of times. One time they wouldn't let me donate because I looked like I was an intravenous drug user, but I just had a very active kitten at the time. (laughs) (laughs) And another time my blood pressure was too low because I had been meditating while waiting in the waiting room. So So I went and, you know, 
did a, did a little, around. Yeah, did a little <laughs> lap of the waiting room and then was able to donate blood. <laughs> oh, I love that that kitten story. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> anyway. So another disadvantage based on the Creever recommendations is there's now an overemphasis on rare but high profile risks like the HIV and the hep C. And there's a lack of discussion with the public about lower profile risks, such as transfusion reactions, which are more common. The safety controls also have several built-in redundancies that raise the cost of blood. Testing blood is very good, but then we, ha we end up having issues because that coupled with the long list of donation ineligible people that we've discussed, they are considered high risk by only Canadian blood services. This can lead to blood shortages when supplies are most needed. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you're constricting your eligible pool of donors. Yeah. In the five years after I stopped donating, I had them saved in my phone as the vampires because I was mm. ineligible and I would tell them that, but they would call back every three months. <laughs> like, I can't give you my blood. I'm sorry. <laughs> they did give up on me pretty quickly because I'm AB positive, so mm. I'm basically useless. Like, they just <laughs> make, they make platelets out of my blood. Yeah. I'm A <laughs> negative, so, I mean, surprise, surprise. Uh, <laughs> so, well, other countries have experienced tragedies with tainted blood, only Canada scrapped their entire system and restarted it. Other countries have restricted different types of donors, etc. But only Canada went, no, this entire thing is broken and let's restart. So uh, Canada is full of accelerationists rather than incrementalists is what you're saying. In this point. <laughs> well, and so I've heard, and maybe your research says yes or no, um, that they did the whole reset thing because the public trust in the whole institution was just so fucked yep. that it could not recover under the same yeah. name. Yeah, and that's why, I mean, around the world, it's usually the Red Cross that does blood donation, but in Canada, mm -hmm. it's, you know, Canadian blood services. And the Red Cross is like, especially in people of like my parents' generation. It's just, no, you don't go to the Red Cross because they mm. were of that age. I mean, this is a, a sort of a personal tale, but my ex-mother-in-law, she received a letter in 1985 saying that she needed to be tested for hep C and HIV because she has a uh, blood clotting disorder. It's hereditary. Mm. Uh, my ex-husband has it as well. And when he was born in 79... She received a large blood transfusion right in the mm. middle of the the time when it was probably not like when all this was happening with the HIV and Hep C. But she turned out to be negative for both of these, so that was a good thing. But they had a really big scare in the 80s mm -hmm. when she had two small children. So yeah, for sure. I remember. I remember when I heard about this. I was quite young, and I the reason that I know about it is that I got this oversized Christmas themed storybook. I don't remember if it was a coloring book too, but it was one of those ones that was like two feet tall or no, like three feet tall. Like it was a, one of those big books. Right. Mm -hmm. And the story of it was that it was at least from what I recall, the story of it was that it was one of my dad's coworkers had given it to us and he had since passed away from hep C or HIV that he got because he had hemophilia and he got tainted blood. Yeah. Oh, no. So and many, that's how I learned of this whole scandal when I was a kid. So many hemophiliacs were affected and 
one of the first resources I found was from the Hemophilia Society and yeah. how to deal with these resources as a hemophiliac. And it's a tragedy. Yeah. I want to go back to, and we were talking about, they scrapped the entire Red Cross blood services. What is stopping Canada from looking at other, more slow-acting crises like housing and poverty and water availability. Why don't we take a step back, scrap systems, and create better systems to protect everyone like this now, too? Why can't we keep doing these overhauls when our systems just aren't working? Yeah, I mean, uh, we we should. Um, we have precedent. But, <laughs> but people but still have plenty of trust in the ignore homeless people model. Yeah. There's and, also... And scrapping the the Red Cross donation model had a lot less effect on people who are wealthy and comfortable yep. than um, overhauling uh, the rent system. See, I was looking at it similarly, but from a different angle there. With the tainted blood, is that anybody, regardless of wealth, could have it happen. Mm -hmm. Whereas with homelessness, if you're above a certain net worth, chances are pretty low that you're going to have to experience that or that your children will or anything like that. There is no equalizer for that. For I mean, like it happens in like people move from extremes in different directions, but the rich and wealthy probably never have to worry about being homeless. Even Robert Durst was never homeless. Yeah. So anytime it's something that could in fact happen to anyone that's when we're going to see overhauls. But the chronic societal problems that we perpetuate can't happen to a few people. And those are the people with the most power in that. And so that's that's part of why it is. Yep. And so many people, like the saying goes, uh, you're way closer to being houseless than you are to being a billionaire. So let's get with the uh, yeah. <laughs> collective action here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's all exactly. I'm saying is, you know, a call to action. Yeah, we've gone over you these radical socialists. You damn straight. <laughs> and as such, I want to end on a hopeful note. Ooh, I know. Surprising for me, huh? Currently, a promising vaccine for HIV is in testing. Oh Ooh! my God! Yeah, their early stage phase one clinical trial, which is still underway, involves 48 healthy adults who received a total of two doses of either the vaccine or the placebo. Two months apart. Sound familiar? Preliminary mm -hmm. data showed 97% of those who received the vaccine had early evidence that their immune system may be able to make the broad antibodies to fight HIV. That would be awesome. Yeah. We don't know where this trial super, will lead, but cool. I'm so hopeful that we can find a cure for this epidemic in our lifetime. And it's also easy to forget how far we have come in the battle against HIV. Yeah. It was a death sentence, and now it's not. Yeah, in, in the 80s, if you were diagnosed with HIV, your life expectancy was one to two years. Yeah. Um, today, if you are diagnosed with HIV, your average life expectancy is 57 years, as, so long as you are, you know, you able to... Have medication. Get the, get the uh, yeah. antiretrovirals. Well, I'm of an age mm -hmm. where AZT was the, like, amazing miracle drug, but there's been so many developments in the 20 years since then. 25 years and mm -hmm. I mean I'm younger than the generation that had the first complete devastation from HIV but it's yeah. still f felt in our community so much and part of that as well is that basically uh, I had heard that it is the same technology as the Moderna COVID vaccine and 
imagine if the HIV vaccine was funded, you know, five, ten years ago, the way that it has been funded right now. Because the, the only reason that it's getting up off the ground is all of this extra money flying around right now. So Yep. A lot of it is that, but I, a lot of it is also the fact that it is a lot of the research is based on research that was done for SARS as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's got both of those advantages. Yeah, the the huge money that's being funneled into it is is a major a major thing for sure. Imagine if we funded medical science. Imagine if we didn't fund carceral justice or carceral injustice, and we put that money into community supports. And medical science. Goddamn. Oh, yeah. Wait, I'm trying to end on a hopeful note. (laughs) Imagine. Imagine. Imagine Imagine a a star sway. Well, thanks so much, Lauren. Why don't we we end our show tonight uh, with, uh, with something nice? I have something nice. I recently started experimenting with using the Pomodoro technique to get shit done. Oh, yeah. You may have noticed that was my longest segment ever, probably, on this whole show, the whole 10-year history. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I definitely should have started working on it earlier, but I got so much work done today setting those timers, and I've been able to get a lot more beads made during the day as well, and it's like... The timer, for some reason, like I I only work if it's like the last hour and I need to get it done. Deadlines are the only thing that makes me do anything. But the timer makes my brain say, thing must be done in 25 minutes. Not, you get a break in 25 minutes. But it's just, I don't know. It's it's magic and I hope it keeps working. (laughs) Because I would love to get twice as much done every day than I used to. (laughs) Nice. I've tried using those timers and they don't work the same way for me. So I'm really glad they're working for you. (laughs) Lauren, do you have something nice? I do. It's a very small something nice. In the last week, I have started working on a weaving project again for the first time in probably a couple of years since I've woven anything. And it's sat on the loom for quite a while. And I've actually started making some progress. It's mostly a procrastination technique, but... It's nice to be able to create create something again. Mm-hmm. That's great. And I have always found that the way I'm most productive is when I'm procrastinating something really important by doing a bunch of things that are slightly less important. It's nice to see you weaving. And I'm not just saying that because it's for me. <laughs> <laughs> but having that outlet is is good. That sort of and something that requires uh, some manual movements is always cathartic. Except I got a hunch over my loom, so then I have to, you know, take a whole bunch of a leave to be able to stand up straight again because yes. oh, no. being, being in your forties sucks. <laughs> uh, um, speaking of of pain and that, I guess one of my something's nice. Speaking of pain, <laughs> here's something nice. <laughs> is that this ongoing chronic low? back hip injury thing that I have is, uh, which had a flare up several weeks ago is getting a lot better. And that's nice. Yay. So it's nice to not be in pain as much. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So that is a nice thing. That's enough. That's great. (laughs) My, my real something nice is 
being done this Oski. Yeah, <laughs> for today. sure. That sounds it horrible. Is, it is it has been a death march. Um but uh we made it through and in a month when I finally get my results, uh, uh I'm confident I won't have to remediate, which is nice, mm-hmm. especially considering some of the shortcomings in the way the the curriculum was presented like it was you know it was harder this year uh with (laughs) with covid precautions and like that Mm -hmm. um yeah so i only have four more exams until the end of the year yay Uh, and that's that's the end of the year in like a week oh no no the end of the year (laughs) is uh end of may they just throw so many at you I, i never know yeah, uh, yeah, uh, but we just started uh, sort of the last big uh, blocks of the year. It's our second cardiovascular and respiratory blocks, and they're a lot longer than a lot of the other blocks, so so there's only... Oh, shit, I miscounted. I've got six exams left. <laughs> oh, no. Technically. <laughs> yeah, six. Okay, well, anyway, the OSCE was the one that I was really worried about, and that's done. <laughs> So that's that's my real something nice. Uh, another something nice is uh, Laura and I have been watching Ted Lasso, uh, mm-hmm. and that's just kind of a lovely a lovely show. It um, really is. It, like it's, I it, I really enjoy that show. It's funny. It's on Apple, right? Yeah, it's on Apple TV Plus uh, or wherever else you might choose to find it on the internet if you are so inclined. Uh, we have an Apple TV Plus subscription because it came with my phone when I had to replace my phone. So my iPad came with a free year and I mm-hmm. didn't bother signing up for it because I was just like, nothing good is on there. But now everyone's talking about this Ted Lasso show, <laughs> damn it. Seriously, it's it's really enjoyable. It, it, it is um, extremely rare for me to find like a comedy show that is like, biting and like extremely funny but also so it's thoughtful it's like thoughtful and and positive and like there's such a warmth to it um it's but not it, just biting to take people down yeah but it also doesn't like pull its punches it like mm-hmm. it's a very different show but the feeling the the kind of like warm satisfaction i get from watching it reminds me of you're the worst uh, which is just a, a, an absurd comparison because you're the worst. Is such so a different opposite. show, but the the emotional yeah. Yeah. like truth. Yeah. That man, you're the worst was a good show, but Ted Lasso is great. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's just it's lovely. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> isn't my happiness enough? Yes. Uh, Said the white man. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. As soon as I said it, I'm like, "Oh, that that could be twisted." We're just gonna have to add, "Isn't my happiness enough?" to the end of every outtake section now. <laughs> well, uh, thanks for joining me tonight, folks. What are we talking about uh, next month, Ashlyn? Uh, next month, we are going to be watching Sea Spiracy together, and uh, we'll see what we think about the claims that they make. Awesome! Sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Been a while. Maybe watch it in advance if you uh, want to know what we're talking about with you know visuals and stuff. So it's on mm-hmm. Netflix. Good, Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Life, the universe, and everything else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. 
If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey.